Well, it is right and it's appropriate to thank God for all the wonderful blessings that he has provided and, and given us. We have a couple here even today. Uh, the Zaders are joining us, first time as a married couple with us this morning. And Drake is hiding her face right now because I'm drawing attention to her right now. But congratulations, folks. It's good to have you. And I see that Mike is over here. And congratulations on Naomi Dandapa being born this past week. Mike's granddaughter was born. Rindy and Olivia's daughter was born this past week. Make sure that you acknowledge that. Uh, I want to say, in, in way of just being able to celebrate the freedoms that we're able to enjoy, please come and feast with us after uh, the worship service today. Nothing says God bless America like chicken chimichangas. So uh, make sure you come and, and enjoy that, that blessing with us. Uh, but before we, we feast uh, on food, let's feast on the Word of God this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we have already sung about your Son, Jesus Christ. We have unanimously proclaimed that He is the living truth and that all wisdom dwells in Him and that He is the source of every skill the one eternal true, the great I am. And so, Lord, we come to him this morning. We ask that he is the one that would teach us through his life example and also through his words, that Jesus Christ might be magnified amongst us today, and that, Lord, when we leave this place, we can truly say that our Lord has spoken to us. Feed us through your word this morning. And may you be glorified in it all. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. It will help you to be able to consult the Word, not just uh, your worship guide to be able to see this. This past week in our staff meeting, I went through just a snippet of verses 23 through 33 in our devotional. That brief look took a good 20 minutes or so. There are so many theological riches that we could mine in just these verses alone, but I'm going to ask that you're going to indulge me as I cover a lot of ground here by expositing all the way from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. By doing so, it will allow us to continue to see the overall theme of chapter 21 and 22, and then the subtle sub-theme that emerges from it. As I do this, I know I'm only going to be able to make some passing comments on some big-time theological issues. So let me provide you here with a visual aid. I want you to imagine that you are driving to your most favorite place in the world. And you're going to pass by a lot of signs promising some wonderful attractions. You know, things like Dinosaur World or Alligator Farms or, or Mini Golf. And as you are passing by this, you might want to stop and see those things. But instead of getting off the exit, we're just going to stay on the highway because the final destination will be worth it. But that doesn't mean we can't take a mental note of all those attractions and, and come back and visit them later. So let me reorient you to where we are in the story. It is Holy Week, the week that precedes our Lord's death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. It began with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, where he was welcomed and praised by the populace. But not everyone was excited about the arrival of Jesus. He immediately began to receive opposition from the religious leaders. Despite the evidence to the contrary, they reject Jesus as Messiah. And our author, Matthew, is telling us why. 
He does not convey this opposition chronologically here, like this happened on Monday, and this happened on Tuesday, and so on. Rather, he summarizes the events thematically. He begins this section with the cursing of the fig tree, which becomes symbolic of what follows in the rest of the narrative. Jesus finds a fig tree that has all the signs of being a healthy plant, but it bears no fruit. So it becomes cursed. And that is exactly what we've been seeing in the Jewish religious leaders. They give the appearance of looking righteous, but their hearts are far from God. Matthew provides us here with eight controversial moments between Jesus and the religious leaders. It will reveal their fruitlessness. And we'll see a little later that chapter 23 becomes a curse upon their behavior. So far, we have covered five of those confrontations. And I wanna cover the last three this morning. Last week, we saw a salvo launched by the Pharisees and the Herodians when they questioned Jesus about Roman taxation. This was a political maneuver to get Jesus in hot water for either agreeing with the Roman occupation or disagreeing with it. And our Lord's answer was very deft here. He simply left it that all authority was under God's authority. It was a masterful answer that addressed the real issue. And for verse 15 here, we can see that question was a plot hatched by the Pharisees. Now in verse 23, the next trap will come from the Sadducees. And rather than being politically motivated, it is theological. And in order for us to understand what is going on, we need to provide a little background information on the different beliefs of the two religious parties. There were five major points in which the Sadducees disagreed theologically with the Pharisees. I'm gonna briefly cover these and you can find them listed here on your outline. Number one, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They believed that once you died, that was it. There was nothing else. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that they believed that the soul dies with the body. And as such, according to Acts chapter 23, verse eight, they did not believe in spiritual beings such as angels and demons. There was no heaven or hell. The Sadducees did not believe in an unseen world that was operating simultaneously within the human world. There was a plane of human existence and there was God and that was it. And connected to this was a third belief. The Pharisees believed in predestination, that God orchestrated all events upon the earth. The Lord would accomplish his purposes for the nation regardless of human intervention. And the Sadducees, on the other hand, did not. They believed that human beings control their own destinies through their own decisions and actions. God gave us a trajectory for, for living with the Bible and reaching it was entirely up to us. If the Sadducees walked a righteous path, then they were blessed in this life alone. Since this present world was all that there was and death ended everything, they ruthlessly acquired material wealth. Most Sadducees were rich and they used their wealth to justify their righteous status. See, God has blessed me materially, therefore I must be living right. They were the ultimate purveyors of the health and wealth gospel. They also had a different view of the scriptures than the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the entire corpus of the Old Testament, all 39 books, as we would call them, every word of it from God. 
They were very meticulous about its literal interpretation, creating many commentaries called the traditions, and they felt it necessary to adhere to all of it if one were to be righteous. The Sadducees, on the other hand, focused only on what is called the written law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They tended to interpret the scriptures metaphorically, hence why they could explain away the angelic accounts in Genesis and, and the angel of death in the Passover. These weren't real spiritual beings, they said. They're just myths to help our understanding of the stories. And because of their emphasis upon the written law alone, their ministry focused exclusively on the temple. They weren't interested in the synagogues as teaching centers around Judea. They realized whoever controlled the sacrificial system of the temple held power over the population. And this is why they ensured that the Romans always approved their choice of high priest. Now, the reason I highlight these beliefs is that all of them will come into play within this next controversy. Now, remember, the Sadducees do not believe in an afterlife, much less a resurrection from the dead. So they present Jesus with an absurd situation based upon Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. Under this law, a man was required to become a husband to his deceased brother's widow to ensure that the inheritance of the promised land stayed within the family. That was the intent of the law. And the Sadducees used this law to mock the idea of an afterlife. They present a situation in which a widow has married seven brothers successively after each man dies. Now, if this had legitimately happened, I would be a little suspicious of the wife here, at least after the death of her third husband. But that is not the dilemma that they present. By using the number seven, there could not be any argument that she loved one brother over another or was treated better by another or spent the most time with one brother or any other reason that she would gravitate to one of the husbands in the afterlife. They thought they had Jesus in a true dilemma. Once again, Jesus responds masterly. He begins by telling the Sadducees they were all wrong because they didn't know the scriptures. Note the plural there, the entire Old Testament. He could have just said law if he was making reference to just the Torah. But by saying scriptures, plural, he is endorsing the entire Tanakh, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And the primary reasons that they are wrong is they do not know the power of God which grants insight into the scriptures. These men have leaves on the outside, but they are lifeless on the inside. They bear no fruit. Next, Jesus affirms the resurrection from the dead. And remember, this is someone who intimately knows heaven and earth. This is the one through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were created in heaven and on the earth. This is the one who had witnessed events from eternity in heaven. This is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. If there's anyone qualified to affirm that there is a heaven and tell us what it's like, this is the man. Jesus says they are mistaken because there is no marriage in heaven. Instead, Christians are like angels. Now let me address both of those thoughts real quick here. Jesus doesn't say this because he didn't value the marriage covenant. In fact, go back to chapter 19 and you will see that he truly places the marriage covenant 
as a high commitment that we are to honor. There will be no need for marriage in heaven because once we arrive there, the purpose for what marriage portrays will be in its full fruition. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage is to portray the one flesh fidelity of the relationship between Christ and the church. Once we're in the presence of Christ, we'll no longer need that exclusive relationship with another human to portray it because we'll have all we need in Christ, total fulfillment. My wife is my best friend in all the world. I think we have an excellent marriage, but as wonderful as it is, I don't think it will compare to basking in the presence of our Jesus without any sin to inhibit our relationship to him. We will be in total fulfillment. And we're like the angels in this regard. Note that Jesus doesn't say we become angels. That's bad theology. Angels are spiritual beings without a body. I don't want my loved ones to become angels. I want them to have resurrected bodies that I can hug and hold on to. No, we become like angels in that we no longer need marriage. Angels are already in that state within the Lord's presence. They have all they need in the full acceptance of God. But just to put a cherry on top of his answer here, Jesus emphasizes the afterlife by quoting from the Torah. He provides a proof text from the part of the scriptures that they would agree with. Verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And here he quotes Exodus 3, 6, when God speaks to Moses, the lawgiver, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus emphasizes the presence tense here. Oh, how I would like to just take this exit from the highway at this point and talk about inspired grammar, but I'm going to stay on the road instead to reach our destination here. The present tense indicates that Yahweh is presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning those three men were and are still alive in some way, even though the last of them, Jacob, died some 300 years before God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh is the God of the living. In fact, his very name indicates life. I am. I am the self-existing one. The crowd's astonished by the teaching of Jesus here. He just put the Sadducees in their place concerning their major doctrines. He validates the entirety of the Old Testament. He advocates interpreting the Bible literally. He affirms angels as well as affirming the afterlife. And note, these were all doctrines that were cherished by the Pharisees. The Pharisees should have been saying yes and amen. They aligned perfectly with Jesus on these points. They should have been cheering for Jesus, but that is not what they do. They choose their nemesis, the Sadducees, as allies, not Jesus. We're told here in verse 34, they hear of the defeat of the Sadducees so that they go into planning mode once again. How else can we stump Jesus? Perhaps we can use the, the greatest commandment question, a question that had always been debated among the learned rabbis. Maybe we can trip them up here. I say that because Matthew tells us in verse 35 that this plot was designed to put Jesus to the test. They send one of their legal experts on the law to ask it, 
And Jesus responds with what is known as the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Shema means here in Hebrew. It's the first word that Moses spoke to Israel once he again presents the people the law after 40 years in the wilderness and just prior to entering into the promised land. We read it earlier in our service. The command is to love the Lord with our entire being. And then the second command is from Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor as yourself. This is another exit ramp that I would love to take here. In fact, perhaps we can at least kind of pull over and fill up for gas for just a moment before we get back on the highway. Jesus has just presented as RC, uh, J.C. Ryle has well said, the secret key to obedience, which is love. Love is the secret key to obedience. It's a pleasure to obey those whom you love and love you. It's easier to serve someone else when you love them. When I married my wife, there were certain things that she wanted me to do regarding some of my selfish and more manly behaviors. She would probably call them request, but I would classify them as commands because there were consequences to my disobedience. Apparently, not all women like to pick up the mess after their men. My mom had been doing it for me and my brothers for years. But Lisa reminded me, I did not marry my mother. So would I please put my dirty clothes in the laundry basket? See, request, but really a polite command. And you know what? I love my wife. That was a rule that was easy to obey. Because I love her, not because I fear her. It, it seems appropriate on Memorial Day weekend to invoke an anecdote from, from the life of George Washington. Now, let me just say, Washington doesn't get a pass in his life. He had issues just like the rest of us. He should have done better on religious liberty when the nation was established, and he should not have owned fellow human beings. All right? We're not going to give him a pass on those things, but we will recognize his contributions to our nation. When he was the commanding general of the Continental Army, Washington was beloved by his men. In fact, he fought Congress all the time to make sure that they were well-fed and clothed. And he lived in the camp with them, out with his men, enduring the same conditions that they did when his office and his rank would allow him to seek out shelter in better circumstances. One of his officers wrote this about him, quote, Our army love their general very much, but they have one thing against him, which is the little care he takes of himself in any action. His personal bravery and the desire he has of animating his troops by example makes him fearless of danger. This occasions much uneasiness." End quote. When conditions to the Continental Army had become so severe, a rebellion arose among some of his officers to replace the Army's leadership at the congressional level. This is often referred to as the Newburgh Conspiracy. A pamphlet suggesting that the army actually march against, march against Congress in Philadelphia was circulated in the camp. And Washington gathered his officers as he read the circular, and he said, my goodness, what can this writer have in view by recommending such measures? 
Can he be a friend to the army? Can he be a friend to this country? Rather, is he not an insidious foe? And towards the end of his address, Washington reached into his pocket to retrieve a pair of spectacles. And in a theatrical gesture, he remarked, I've not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. This display of self-sacrifice from their long-standing leader deeply affected many of the officers to, to turn and abandon their treasonous thoughts and return the obvious affections of their leader. It's easy to follow and obey that which you love. It's easy to serve and treat rightly those whom you love. In the same way, how can we not love the benevolent God who loved us, chose us, and sent his son to die for us? We should obey God out of sincere and genuine love, not to manipulate him or to, to barter with God our obedience so that somehow we might receive our affections from him in that way. And this is what Jesus is getting at with these two commandments. The root of the motivation to obey is love. All the law and the prophets hang on this. Now, it's important to know in context that Jesus addresses this particularly to the Pharisees. He's going to address this issue with them again in chapter 23 when he speaks to the crowds. I'd encourage you to read ahead and, and you'll see, despite having some right doctrines, what the Pharisees lack is love, both for their fellow man and for God. Jesus has put his finger on their heart problem. They're great at following commandments and traditions, but they do not follow the greatest commandment of all. They do not love God. And finally, we have the last controversy. And this time it's initiated by Jesus. He's going to point out the right question to be asked is not one on taxation. It's not one on resurrection, nor is it a theological debate. It is Christological. Remember, the Pharisees held that all the Old Testament was authoritative, including the Psalms. So while they're gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, this time from Psalm 110, about the Messiah, or the Christ in Greek. Both terms mean anointed one, referring to the person who would come to deliver God's people and restore them back to his favor. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That is a correct answer. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David that the Messiah would come through his line. A king would come from him that would rule forever. Old Testament prophecies confirm this. Passages like Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Or we could also point to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10. There was no doubt that God would bring forth the Messiah from David's descendants. So here's the question. Verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
Now, this is strange terminology. Psalm 110 is definitely about the Messiah, and it was written by King David. The son is never greater than the father, and yet Yahweh, the covenantal God, says to David's Lord, one whom David admits to be his Lord, sit at my right hand. What is more, this figure is later called a priest forever in the same psalm at verse 7. This person is not only ultimately king, but he is a priest that can mediate between God and his people. This is obviously a reference to Jesus, who was the word of God and existed before the world came into being. He is the one whom King David would, would bow the knee and acknowledge that he is the king of kings. He will lay down his perfect life at the cross as a substitute for us, mediating between God and man. Jesus can answer this riddle, but the Pharisees cannot. Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So throughout this section, we have seen clearly that the religious leaders of Jerusalem are straw men. They have held sway over the population they look good according to their own emphasis on the doctrines that they hold to be important. But there is no love of God within them. Like the fig trees with leaves, there is no fruit. There is only futility. And these were the teachers of Israel. This is whom the people were learning from. The Sadducees would lead the souls of God's people literally into the ground. The Pharisees would set a bar so high with their meticulous rules that no one could measure up. So, so don't lose sight of what Matthew is teaching here by implication. And here is the implied sub-theme. There is a new teacher on the scene to lead the people towards wholeness in God. Look back again in chapter 21. This teacher doesn't distance himself from the people. No, he is always, always accessible to the general population. You can find him every day in the temple courtyard ready to teach the truth. He teaches under the same authority that validated the baptism and the person of John the Baptist. He doesn't just teach the greatest and brightest students. His teaching is gentle and lowly, and it's given even to fishermen, to prostitutes, to tax collectors. And yet, according to chapter 21, verse 45, his teaching brings a loving conviction and a warning. He warns, turn from bad doctrine and seek the truth. Even his enemies admitted in chapter 22, verse 16, that he teaches the way of God truthfully and could not be swayed by any mere man. His teaching made the Pharisees and the Herodians marvel at him, verse 22. His teaching caused the crowds to be astonished, verse 33. His teaching zeroes in on the greatest requirement of love. His teaching causes the greatest minds in Jerusalem to be silent at such authority. This is Jesus, the Messiah, 
The good shepherd who will now lead his people in the way of righteousness that will cause them to place their faith in him and his atoning work at the cross. There is a new teacher in the city, one who will bring the people life. Now it's appropriate here to stop and think. What would our lives look like if Jesus had not come to rescue us from false teaching? If the pure gospel had not entered into your life, would there be any fruit at all? Would you be like the Sadducees, living like this life is all there is, ruthlessly seeking to obtain all the wealth you can for personal pleasure, only to know game over when you die? Would you be like the Pharisees, having a form of right doctrine, but without Jesus, without the Christ, always wondering if you performed enough, if you met enough of the requirements, if you were pure enough in heart to be able to stand before God, but never knowing for sure? Would there be fruit? The Apostle Paul was one of the staunchest Pharisees that ever lived. And yet he testified in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And here he's referring uh, referring to the Jews here who would force circumcision on others as a means of salvation. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, meaning the church, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul, did did you have fruit before Jesus? Did you have fruit before Christ came to life? He would go on to say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul would tell us, if Christ had not come, I would still be trying to find my God through my religious performance. There would be no fruit in my life. But for most of us, since we don't have Jewish forefathers, we would have probably had no access to the scriptures at all. We'd be left on our own to seek out the divine, wouldn't we? Paul addresses this as well in Romans chapter 1. That maybe we'd look out in the universe and we would consider that there is a God, but that our sin nature would cause us to suppress the truth. We would begin to worship the created things rather than the creator. That would be us. We would be the ones making idols out of things like our sports teams, our jobs, 
our titles, our lavish lifestyles, devoting ourselves to things that can never fulfill and we can never take into the next life. But that is the beauty of what Jesus has done. He has entered the world to correct all of that, to teach the way of God truthfully. He does not say, remain ignorant of who I am and make up whatever you want about God. He does not say, come to a religion, get the details right, and maybe you'll get to meet me. No, he says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus wants to teach us? He wants us to understand and and not remain in ignorance. He doesn't want us to stumble around or, or keep us in the dark in order to manipulate us. He simply says, come to me. Come to me and let me teach you. That is not just a beautiful picture of being rescued from false teaching. For me, it is relief that it's not about me. It's not about my actions. It's not about what my hands can do or my mind thinks. It is about what Christ has already done on my behalf. Come and learn from the Lord Jesus. What is he teaching? What is he telling you? Let's pray. Lord, perhaps there are some here who are seeing the beauty of your son, Jesus. And it's awakening something inside of them where they're seeing, you mean this isn't about living according to rules? And that, Lord, that is starting to pry open chains that have held them in bondage. And that, Lord, they are being rescued from false teaching right now, even in this moment. And so, Lord, I pray that for that person who is seeing it for the first time or for the believer that has a tendency to to always go back to some sort of man-made religion, that, Lord, you would give them such a vision of Christ Jesus that would completely cause them to do a 180, to repent and to respond to the gospel in this moment, to know that Jesus Christ is sufficient and my faith is in him, that, Lord, they would rise up to see what Christ accomplished on the cross, knowing that he died in our place, and that not only did he die and take our sin upon us, but by faith we can receive his righteousness instead, and that by doing so we become known as the children of God that we literally say what we read in Jeremiah 23, the Lord is my righteousness. Christ Jesus is our righteousness. So Lord, give us such a vision of Jesus that there is no doubt in our minds. No doubt, Lord, that that some sort of man-made religion can rescue us. No doubt that some lie can somehow uphold us, but only the truth, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to come through the Father is through your Son, Jesus. Give us a great vision of that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.